Then children were brought to him, to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Here ends the reading of God's word. Brother. Is this on? Yeah? All right. Sorry, it's hard for me to, um, I'm going deaf as I get old, or maybe I'm already old, and so it's kind of hard sometimes to tell if the speakers are on or not, or where sounds are coming from. My, my wife is insisting I get a hearing aid, and I'm going to be rebellious as long as possible. Um, but Bill, thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the opportunity to worship with you as I was sharing with Bill uh, when I finally got to meet him. I was one of those students, I think we kind of overlapped a bit back in the 90s, and I was one of those students who just kind of came to class and went home. And so I kind of knew everyone, Westminster has gotten a lot larger since the 90s, but I knew a lot of names, but nobody knew me, uh, but that's fine. Uh, so it's a privilege to be here when you're a part-time member of staff at a church. You don't get many opportunities to skip a Sunday at your own church because it's like you're only here part of the time. You know, we pay you for this much. So to miss a Sunday, I was uh, really grateful for not just the invitation, but for the opportunity to, to come here. Um, it's, uh, it's funny that Bill would bring up the, the loss last night. Uh, my wife was telling me this morning, encouraging me, she says, well, you, you seem to be dealing with your sports losses a lot better than you used to. And uh, I don't recall, but I think when we lost to the Yankees, she claims I was throwing stuff, but I don't recall that at all. Maybe I've just sort of suppressed it, or uh, as far as the East is from the West, God has separated that from me. Um, but if you're a soccer fan, it was a bad day. Uh, the Union lost, the Phillies lost, and a friend of mine sent me a comment, and I think he meant it out of the goodness and warmth of his heart, but he said, maybe this is the year of second places. And I'm thinking, Super Bowl, second place? I don't know if I can handle that either. Uh, so I wasn't very encouraged by that, but um, I definitely, I, I, I'm actually grateful that it ended in some way, uh, so it doesn't linger over me as I preach. Um, but it's over, and we can look forward to next year. So, so Bill has told me that you guys have been focusing on missions, and I was deeply encouraged to kind of get back into praying for specific countries. I remember the time when I was inspired by my days or my attendance at Urbana and taking... Um, forget the manual, Operation World Missions or something like that, where it would go through a daily uh, schedule, a ritual of uh, praying for a specific country. And, and I think I've been re-inspired to go back to that. And so I thank you for that. Uh, so I racked my brain, what can I possibly share about missions that hasn't already been spoken about a million times? Uh, do I just go to the go-to in Matthew 28 and talk about Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, tell them to obey Jesus. Do I do that? And I thought, 
I think that's probably going to be covered somewhere, so I'll try to approach it from a slightly different angle. And so I am going to try, uh, and hopefully there will be a lot of the Lord's grace in the time after you leave this place to mull over the message, but I'm going to try to connect missions with parenting. Now, I get it. A lot of you may not be parents, I'm assuming, uh, and some of you may be kind of like me where you're almost done. Uh, we have three children, and I'll call them children as long as I'm still alive, and one is 21. He's got a couple more months left in college. Our second is enjoying college. She's a sophomore, and we have a, a senior in high school who is just all about the basketball season and getting ready to go off to college. So, and we're very excited for him to play basketball and go off to college. So not to play basketball in college, he's not that good, but uh, to leave the house. And we're more than happy to see that happen, not because he's been a bad child, but uh, we are certainly very excited for the next chapter in our life. And, and so even for me, I always like to, as a preacher, be encouraged by my own preaching. And, how, and a question that I asked myself was, how am I going to be encouraged by a sermon on parenting? How is a college student going to find relevance and meaning in a message about parenting when maybe they have no intentions of getting married? Or they've become cynical and negative and said, well, that's never going to happen for me. I know there was a time where I didn't think I was going to get married, but uh, lo and behold, I have three children. Uh, so how do I make this something that you can take home with you? Well, one picture that came to mind for me was the dinner table. And I grew up where the dinner table was very, very quiet. My mother was the only one talking, asking me questions, asking my brother and I, and questions that we would never respond to, and my dad just ate and he left the table. He just was that kind of person. He never really, he only spoke out of necessity. So it was very quiet. So I vowed to myself I was going to make my dinner table, when I become a father, very lively. And so sometimes that would actually be uh, dangerous because our dinners would end up being like two hours long and, and no one has finished their meal. And then they have homework to do. So we vowed to be very proactive and intentional about cultivating conversation at the table. So imagine that your children come home after a long day at school, you from a long day at work, and you ask the stereotypical question, so how is school? Well, hopefully if I'm asking that question to my children, I'm wanting to know genuinely how things went. Now. I was once in high school too, but as they like to remind me, times have changed. And I'm sure they have. And even though I am a high school teacher, I find myself completely oblivious to what they're saying. The vocabulary is 75% unintelligible. I just, I just don't know. I just learned glizzy this past week. Um, if you know what glizzies are, and some of you are like, I have no idea, and I hear a snicker over here. So. Um, are, sometimes they sell glizzies at school. It's not illegal. But um, so I realized that, but when I asked the question, I hopefully am genuinely wanting to know how it was and with the hope that I can speak into that. 
It may not necessarily be a problem or an issue or a challenge, and maybe it is, and typically, I'm not here to stereotype, I'm just here to confess that it just happened to be that with my daughter, she brought a lot of drama home, and so it was typically more of the challenging nature. And I would try to speak into that, light into darkness, Jesus into everything else, whatever it was. Or sometimes I would just try to encourage them, say, you know, I don't really understand, and it's not something I'm really familiar with, but, and all of us have an opinion. And if we're believers, hopefully that opinion is motivated by and, and comes from our faith in the Lord. So hopefully this experience today as we look at God's Word together can be like a dinner table where you may be looking at something that isn't in your life today, but something that maybe later or even today can be of relevance because when you look at a family that's really struggling with their kids, rather than judging them as to what's wrong with that child, you pray for them that the peace of Christ would be with them. Because I can tell you that if you're in worship and your child doesn't want to be there, you feel like everyone is looking at you, thinking about you, listening to you, and you just want to run and hide. So rather than casting judgment and in, in those types of circumstances, we can encourage. And again, for me, being on a different side of the aisle, I can say and, and be motivated to pray from experience, knowing how challenging that can be. So we're going to look at the kingdom and parenting, and it all sort of converges into this passage. So uh, let me read it really quick, because um, I always like to refresh my memory. Um, Matthew 19, 13 to 15, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. <clears throat> If you look at the surrounding passages, I think, I believe that the one that precedes and the one that follows, they both help us understand a little bit about this really short yet compact and powerful passage. In the one previous, there is a story about marriage. And people asking, well, can we divorce our spouse? And Jesus wants to remind them that the whole point isn't whether you can or you cannot or under what circumstances. He wants to remind them, and it's a really short verse in there, and he sneaks it in. But he wants, to know, wants them to be reminded that marriage was never meant to be broken. But Jesus understands that you and I are in a really messy situation. The sin has caused a lot of messiness it's complicated things. It's made it extra difficult. And although he puts it in different terms, I do believe there's a little bit of compassion when he says, yeah, under certain circumstances, adultery, you can get a divorce. But I don't think Jesus is telling them, go ahead, just jump right to it. I'm certain that the hope that Christ has for people who find themselves in this unfortunate circumstance is let's try reconciliation, because marriage is good. 
And although in earthly terms and human psychology, it's almost impossible to imagine or conceive of a rebuilt marriage functioning better than before the adultery, the power of the gospel says it's possible. It's unimaginable to so many of us, even if we are Christian, even if we say amen to the power of Jesus, it's, it's hard to imagine that should this happen, whether it's me or her or him, whatever, that our marriage could actually be better. I'm, I'm not saying seek sin, you know, we don't sin so that grace may abound. Uh, Paul says, may it never be. But that is the greatness of the gospel. I'm reminded of the fact that uh, I believe the scripture tells us that when we see Jesus in heaven, his hands are going to be pierced. I, I think of how I would react on this side of eternity, seeing the wounds of sin, of betrayal, of injustice, and they make me mad. They rehash old wounds, boil me to a point where I, I just can't stop sinning with my mind and my words. But it's amazing that when we go to heaven and we see Jesus with these nail-pierced hands, we're not going to ramble on about injustice. We're going to celebrate God's glory, his mercy, his victory and triumph over injustice. But those nail-pierced hands will still be there. So if that's possible there, and Jesus is telling me the kingdom has come, I think he brings a little bit of that heavenly kingdom with him. And so with the marriage part, he wants us to remind us that before sin made anything messy, it was really good. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, there were just a few things that God had mentioned. He said, be fruitful, multiply. He wanted Adam and Eve to be together and to, for that marriage never to be broken. There were a couple of other things as well. The Sabbath was something that he had introduced them, he had instructed them before the fall had come. There was work. Work is actually good. It's not a bad four-letter word. Work is good. If, there's, if work wasn't good, we wouldn't have chairs. If work wasn't good, I wouldn't have this mic. If work wasn't good, I don't think I could have made it today to speak and, and worship with you because I live all the way in Bucks County. I mean, it took, it took us about 35 minutes to drive here. I couldn't imagine walking it. I probably would have given up and walked back. But work is good. Now, the, the curse of the fall and sin sort of complicated things. We sweat and we grow tired. We grumble. We complain. We're ill-compensated, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to work with her, him. I don't like my boss. My hours are bad. I need to get home to make dinner or be with my children, whatever it is. It complicates things. And in the passage following, we see that same complication. There's the rich young man, and there's materialism, there's wealth, and it reminds me of the fact that God gives us this great ability and opportunity to make a living, that our work isn't for nothing. We actually can make money and build a life support our living and our children. But then that teaching of work that God had introduced before sin had entered the world, and it was a perfect teaching, casting a dream and a vision in Adam and Eve's 
brain and their heart about how good it would be to work, now again it's complicated by sin. Complicated to the point where he tells his rich young man, okay, you've done all these things. You say you've been really good about obeying the commandments. How about selling all those possessions and giving to the poor? And he walks away quietly. And there's certainly application about materialism, et cetera, wealth. And, and it's funny, most Christians, I, my, my unofficial um, survey tells me that most Christians believe the Bible tells us that money is the root of all evil. Actually, the Bible tells us the love of money is the root of many evils. So money in and of itself is not a bad thing. But in this, one of the teachings that I extract from this teaching of the, young, the story of the young man, rich young man, is he has separated work from his neighbor, which tells me that before the fall came, God never intended it for the, to be that way. That our wealth, not to say we totally give it all away, that's not always God's call, it may be, but there are times where we bless one another, we support one another, we send money when we can't go. I know it can often be a cheap way to support missions, it can be a cop-out for some of us at times, but certainly not one where we should in the end say, you know what, because I'm not willing to go, I won't send my money. No, there are times, many, many occasions, and we on this side of the world are so blessed, aren't we? Even the ones that grumble as to how little we make, we still make so much in comparison to so many others in this world that God has created, people who bear the image of God. And so part of our responsibility is to love our neighbor as ourselves in this complicated convoluted, sinful, messy world, even through our finances. So what I'd like for us to do is then import that into this small little passage that gets sandwiched between these two passages that I just referenced about children. And there are very few characters in this passage. There are children, parents, disciples, and there's Jesus. And I'd like for you to see yourself in this passage. And I think at every passage in Scripture, God invites us to see ourselves. Where are we? We're somewhere. It's like, where's Waldo? Sometimes it's hard to find, but you're there. You're somewhere in there. Sometimes you fill um, multiple roles. But I believe each passage speaks to us because it's, it's a word that's a revelation to us from God. Okay? So let's make our way through these three verses. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So here's Jesus. He's getting moseyed on along from town to town. And he finds himself in this one place where people know he's going to be at. And these parents, and we don't know their motivation. Maybe they think that something magical is going to happen. Now, I can't judge their motives, but I can say that Jesus wasn't simply a politician just there to kiss the foreheads of babies. Like, my son got kissed by Joe Biden, by Barack Obama, by Donald Trump, whoever else is president. I remember being five feet from Jimmy Carter. I couldn't touch him, but, because um, there were like all these adults blockading. But I was that close, I could, if I was a little older, a little taller, 
would have been able to touch him, but and maybe I don't, I don't recall thinking that anything magical would have happened if I touched Jimmy Carter. But um, maybe there were some people who thought that just by being there and having him pray for him. And, you know, some people in their Christian views believe that when the, whenever the pastor prays for a child, there's something that's magically spiritual going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to go down that route too much, but I will say that when Jesus blesses, it's not just a gesture. It's not just a formality. Oh, pastor, you got to pray for this child. It's not just, oh, we have someone who's sick, can you pray for them? But Jesus is pouring out grace when he blesses. And what, what comes to mind for me is a time when he's headed to the home of a synagogue ruler to heal his daughter. And as he's walking, a woman who has been stricken by some illness that causes her to bleed for 12 years, she simply, without asking, without his knowledge, she touches the fringes of his cloak. The Bible's so descriptive, isn't it? It goes to the extent to tell us not only did she touch his garment, but just the fringe of his cloak, and she's healed. That power went out from him. Healing went from him. So the hope is that these children would receive some sort of grace, some vital and substantial blessing from Jesus. Parents are motivated to bring their children in need to this person. Now, we know later that there are a lot of people who are mistaken. They saw Jesus as some prophet or something else. And it was very possible, maybe even likely, that a lot of them didn't even realize or even considered the fact that Jesus was the Messiah possible. So we get to 14, well, 13. The disciples rebuke the people. Not now. Jesus has better things to do. In fact, the word rebuke is a strong word. It's an admonishment. It's, in other contexts, it suggests the accusation of criminal activity. Stop. It's not just, no, maybe later. It's not cordial. It's not gentle by any means. It's abrupt, almost rude. And the re disciples rebuked the people. These people who were longing, these people who had taken their time out, altered their schedules to take their children to see Jesus. And the disciples, who are the people organizing the event, the 12 who are his representatives, organizers, his supporters, they say no. So already you see the disconnect. Verse 14, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Allow them to come. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think this story, it, it, it accidentally or coincidentally just happens to be about children. I mean, we have children who are in many ways, the most dependent or needy. I mean, actually, you could make argument that as you get older, you become more needy than children. But um, children, in the sense of consider an infant who, can, um, who, who can't make a decision on his or her own, a child who can't find employment, especially back in that day, a child who is still 
developing his or her understanding of the world and still filling their brain with knowledge. At this point in my life, I think it's just oozing out, but that's okay. (laughs) It's all right. My wife's like, how come you can't remember anything? I say, honey, God gave me a hard drive that's really small, and there's just no more room left. So I I don't blame God, but I praise him for his choices. But, um, But these are dependent, and that's the beauty of children, isn't it? Some of you who have older kids, you know, they kind of get a little gross as they grow up. Um, They smell differently. They sound differently. They sound, well, I have two boys, so they they tend to sound a little barbaric, a lot more grunting. It's not like cooing or, you know, little nice little noises that little children, infants make. Um, Yeah. They're, they're gross. Um, but I remember when my son would urinate on me as an infant, and it was cute. Disgusting, but cute. When they pooped for the first time, it was like, yes, you were just happy. Now it's turn on the fan, light a match, go use, why you got to use my bathroom? And we get into a five-minute argument over it. It's different. And you can't just go and hold them like, Dad, please, stop. You know, I'm too old for this. Whereas when they're little, they hold on to you. You hold on to them. You don't mind holding on to them as long as you can until you get tired and then you give it to mom. (laughs) You know, it's amazing how long a mother can hold a child. Men, 20 minutes tops. Women can hold their children forever. It's incredible. But those are good days. I miss those days. So for some of you who are in the midst of the terrible twos, I'm telling you, it's much better than the terrible 20s or the 12s or whatever else. I think actually when, you get, when they get older, parenting enters a very bad stage of spiritual warfare. When they're little, around two, you just pop them into the car seat drive off, and they're sleeping in about, well, at least mine were, sleeping in 10, 15 minutes. Now, going somewhere is an argument. Deciding where to eat. Like, I never would ask my children. I'd say, okay, we're going to McDonald's, and they were so happy. Now I say, we're going to McDonald's. No, I want to go to Chick-fil-A. No, I want to go to Burger King. No, I want to go to Wendy's. I don't want to eat anything. And Okay, we're going to McDonald's. You know, so it's always an argument. Everything's a conversation. Everything is deep and heavy and dramatic. So enjoy a while last. Um, But they are the essence of weakness, humility, helplessness, those who are dependent. What better way to demonstrate the meaning of the kingdom of God, of Christ's coming, and to present it to children. And here we have disciples who say, no, adults first. Adults only, not children. When in fact, I would venture to say that if there were three options how that meeting could have gone, it could have been everybody, adults only, or children only, adults only would have been at the bottom. 
It probably was everybody, but children only second, and then adults only. Always should be children. Because they are innocent, in the sense, not, not go too theological here, but innocent, helpless, weak, and so dependent. And it's interesting, you see this contrast between the disciples who are managing everything, taking care of Jesus' schedule, where he needs to go, who he sees, who he touches, who he talks to, who he holds. They take care of all that. When in fact they got it all wrong, didn't they? And it's funny that when that reflects back onto my life as I was preparing for this message, I tell my students all the time, I say, you know what, I know a lot more Bible than you. I know theology more than you do. I've gone to school for theology and, and all this stuff much longer than you've been alive and that I care to remember. And yet, I am in just as much need of God's grace in Christ as you are. And I know that so often as a parent, as even a Bible teacher, as an adult, it's so easy, it's almost an instinct to present the complete opposite. Say, you need it, I don't, and that's why I'm telling you. And even as a pastor, I know one of my greatest mistakes when I look back and people say, so what are some things you regret in your years as a pastor? I would say when I treated them as they're the ones who needed to hear, and I was just there to tell them. And coming into the pulpit with pride, thinking I had it cornered, I had accomplished it, checked it off in my life, and they didn't. Or to accuse them and to judge them and say, you need it more than I do. It's interesting that the disciples, the story maybe would have been expected if the parents said, no, 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 let's not bother Jesus. But here you have the disciples who say, no. And one thing I love about the Bible and about Christianity, it doesn't hide the faults. You would think Jesus would be a better salesperson. If you try to sell a car, you don't tell someone that, you know, yeah, the, I don't know, the gaskets need to be replaced or the spark plugs are on their tail end. You don't tell them that stuff. You tell them, oh, it's great. It's going to last forever. You know, if you, people ask me, should I get married? Yeah, it's great. You're just going to love each other every moment of your life. You're not going to fight because you love Jesus. Well, good luck with that. But Jesus doesn't hide those things. When we read the Bible from the very beginning, I mean, there's Adam and Eve and they fall. There's David and he cheats. There's David, he throws someone to get killed just to hide up his adultery. There's even the disciples I mean, Jesus doesn't even hide the fact that he's the one that chose Judas. Doesn't look very good. And then you've got Peter, who tells Jesus to his face, no, you're never going to go on that cross. If I have anything to say or do, I'm going to make sure you're not going to die. I mean, if Peter had it his way, we're all doomed. And then you have, even in resurrection, this, these great narratives about how Jesus has conquered sin and death, and Peter and John, they run to the tomb. Why do they run to the tomb? Because they don't believe the woman's testimony. 
The two greatest disciples, and they don't believe the woman's testimony that Jesus is resurrected. And Jesus is like, I told you this a long time ago on many occasions. And the Bible is just so open about even the greatest people that we celebrate in Christian history messed up miserably, monumentally. I love it. Because then that welcomes me not to simply do and not care, but that I can come and be humble. That if I'm humble and I'm sincere to confess my sin to the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive me and restore me. That's the Savior we fall in love with. That's the Savior that unites Himself to us. That's the Savior who in the Great Commission says, I am with you to the very end of the age. Not one who says, again, not this time, I'm a little tired, let's try later, work harder, try again. No, but the one who says, come to me, all you are heavy and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one who invites our children. He desires for our children to come. He desires for us to come like children to the Lord to receive his, bless, his blessing and his grace. So what does this look like? Well, I'll give you sort of an experiential application, and then I'll give you one from Scripture, and we'll close there. Well, some of you have been on a missions trip, maybe one or two or a couple here or there. Maybe you've been on the missions field um, for several years. I don't know. I've been to a couple short-term missions trips. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to go on missions today, Afghanistan. If God were to send me to Afghanistan, and maybe he will one day. It was my prayer back in 1990 that God would send me to the missions field. Shamefully, I thought that meant outside of America. Who am I to say that America is not a missions field? And God's got a wonderful way of twisting things. When I got called to ministry, um, I thought it was to minister to youth. After two years of that, I was done. It's like, Lord, I need something else. I can't do this. So uh, the Lord gave, inspired me to seek academia, train those who would be ministers and missionaries. So I went to Scotland, took a wife who was pregnant and two children, and, and lived out in the U.K., um, and that was nice. And then I came home, applied to every school that was looking for a professor, had every door closed to me. And so God said, why don't you teach high school students? I was like, all right, well, I guess that covers both bases. So here I am. And God has a wonderful way of making things get to where he wants them to be. So who knows where you'll be. But imagine yourself on the missions field. You want to present the gospel. You want to tell them about Jesus. You want to tell them about the Son of God who came, lived amongst us, obeyed a perfect life, lived a perfect life in obedience to God, died in our stead, suffered our punishment on the cross for you, for me, so that we could recognize and know and follow and believe and be united to the one true God. How does that 
apply here? Or is that only for the missions field? See, the way I look at it, missions is in some ways not even needed. And what I mean by that is we're just called wherever we are to expand and to proclaim God's kingdom. Whether it's me here today with you, whether it's me in the subway, whether I'm at a restaurant, or whether I'm with my children, or just my wife, or whether I'm actually in another country or on the streets of Philadelphia. Trust me, there's a lot of gospel needed in Philadelphia. Sharing about Christ. It's just proclaiming the kingdom. What does that look like with your kids? Do you teach them? Do you share about the one who is called Jesus? Do you fill the role of Jesus who says, come, in this passage? Or do you sometimes end, I've been there, I've done that, where you're like the disciples and not now? Those seasons where we didn't do family worship, those times when it was easier just to tell them no rather than to explain why the gospel speaks to that. Or those times when I anticipated my children telling me, Dad, that stuff doesn't work even in a Christian school. And I was ashamed of getting that type of response from my own children that I would just kind of avoid the conversation. Or feeling weak and embarrassed to tell my children to hold to certain biblical views even though their friends may disagree with them or their friends may be even willing to sever their ties. Silent. Often. Still a struggle. Now that, like I said, it's a psychological, spiritual warfare with our kids, they're not that bad. I, if they were here, they would chuckle. They would probably ask me, are we that bad? Maybe sometimes. But especially with, when they get older and you have those opportunities, to have those teachable moments, those times of when you can have conversation with them and share the gospel, do we teach them Christ? Do we tell them Christ welcomes you? Christ calls you? Or do we set up a blockade? If your children are younger, and I don't know where you are, and I, I'm, please don't take this as judgment, I'm only talking from my own experiences, but I remember my kids, I wanted them to be good athletes. I didn't care if they were smart. I wanted them to be good athletes. I'm from Philadelphia, born and raised, sorry. Sports is king here. I just wanted them to play sports well. And I remember one team that my son could play on, and practice was on Sunday. It was right smack dab in the middle of worship. And it was tough. It was easy for me to tell my son he could not go. It may not be easy for you. And the reason why I say it was easy because it was a job. I had to go to church. I got paid. I couldn't take off. The hard part was explaining to him. But the hard part was not, the harder part was not just explaining, but having the confidence that I have no excuses for this. And I'm not going to water it down even if he would be upset, that I felt bad to tell him he couldn't. So that was a struggle. 
And I'm sure some of you probably struggle with that as well. Or to, particularly today as I have conversations about sexuality with my children, about their friends, about the things that they hear and they read and the songs that they are listening to, the shows that they watch. These are tough. Not, it is hard to even explain it, but it's also hard to have my heart have the confidence to know that I'm speaking the truth with power to them. I don't want to be a hindrance. I don't want to rebuke my children from coming to the Lord. Um, let me close with Matthew 28. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that. It's the Great Commission passage. And it gives wonderful tips, I think, on parenting. Maybe not one that anyone has ever turned to for parenting. Starting with verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do I share that? Do I proclaim that in my words to my children, that Jesus is king? Or that there's something else in control of your life, something more powerful in your life, in this culture, in this country, in this world, or is it Christ? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them. My encouragement, strongest encouragement today to you, teach your children. To you who are single in this community, in this covenant community, encourage the teaching that the parents give to their children. Pray that those moments when they are taught, their ears are open and their hearts receptive to that teaching. Pray for them. Do you believe in prayer for each other? We just prayed for Afghanistan, Nigeria. Do you pray for each other's children? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And to go back to when we started in this message, yeah, this world has got a little complicated. Sin has made it a little messy. And so there's so many different options, so many different idols, so many different temptations in this world that even for us, we can't think or see straight as Christians, as parents. But Scripture realigns us to Christ. That our children have been given to us and it's a blessing that they have, that we are a blessing to them. To bless them in the name of Christ with His teaching and His guidance and His love. To point them to the Savior. To point them to the one true God. Not all these other competing gods with smaller G's. Not all these other things that certainly bring great delight and in some ways long-lasting pleasure. But in the end, they'll all fade and prove incapable of satisfying. If you and I believe that Jesus is the one that gives us eternal joy and peace, not happiness, but true satisfaction and joy, peace that, and these are Jesus' words, that the world does not know, nor can it comprehend, and it definitely cannot give to you. You and I have that. Do we give that to our kids?
Because when I think of missions, that's what I want to do when I go to, if I were to go to Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I was praying with my wife and saying, I have no idea what it must be like to live in a country that has been torn by war over and over and over again. I would drive home to Bucks County, my backyard and my front yard. I won't watch football because the Eagles aren't on today. But I'll live in comfort, worldly comfort. These guys live with gunfire. And I would want to come with the confidence of the gospel saying that Jesus, his peace, his joy is true and it eclipses all of these troubles. That it will take your worries away even as the gunfire persists. Even as your village may be raided again. Even as another country tries to take over in a few years. All that. Jesus is greater. The only difference are the circumstances. But the gospel is the same. And so I just want to leave with you my encouragement, my challenge to you. Don't be like the disciples, but be like Jesus, who has united himself to you, says, come. That not only through your words as they invite your children to the Savior, they would also see, imagine visually Jesus saying, come, to those children in our passage. They would see the way you live that it reflects your words as you preach to them, teach them, encourage them, console them, strengthen them with the very words of the gospel. Jesus is everything. And there's a lot of competing voices. But you have to be that one beacon. For people like Bill and myself, it's once a week. You're there at the front line every day. It is tough, but God give us, gives us an abundance of strength to do his work. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to raise these children that you've given to us, even to see children raised in the gospel. Lord, what a pleasure it is that they get to grow up in Christian homes with parents who have been graced to know that Christ is Savior, that you are God. And I pray that you would equip them. Holy Spirit, give them the power and the strength. Uh, even when they're tired, even when they feel defeated and beat up, even when they feel that it will amount to nothing, even when it seems like there's no fruit, you will give them the, the, the motivation, the strength to continue, to teach their children of Christ, to proclaim the gospel to their children, teach them to obey Christ's words and not worldly pressures or temptations. God, we're so grateful that you love our children more than we could ever, more than we could imagine. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us to love them, that they would see the Savior through broken people, people who need Jesus just as much as they do. And we thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.